So growing up, I used to be a math guy. My brother is an engineer. My dad is an engineer of sorts. He can build like anything, and he didn't really get great grades, but the dude's smart when it comes to building things. I thought I was going to be an engineer, and then the Lord kind of had a different direction in mind for my life. But I wasn't, when I was in high school, when I started in ninth grade, I remember hating English with all the grammatical stuff that you have to learn in junior high and all of that. But when we got to, got to high school, we got to like read some, actually some really good books and talk about how stories are made and how to craft a good story and that sort of stuff. And, and I actually kind of love, I fell in love with, with the English language and with words, which is kind of nerdy. I'm reading a book right now called At Wit's End, which is about puns and the origin of wit and puns and dad jokes. It's actually pretty good. I got a dad joke uh, book from Christmas from one of you all, which I appreciate. So I like words. Words are, they're cool. You can do a lot with, with words, but sometimes words are hard. Sometimes words are hard, especially when it comes to the Bible. I've got a word for you this morning. It's hallowed, hollow, to hollow something. I'm not even sure how to say it right because we never say it. I think it's ironic that all of our modern translations have really tried to do a good job of cleaning up the King Jimmy language, the King James, right? They've done a pretty good job with cleaning all, cleaning that up, getting rid of all the words that we don't understand anymore, that don't make sense, and yet... In all of the modern translations, we normally preach out of the NIV. I I use the NLT. I also use the ESV some because every translation kind of has a a good aspect to it. So I I look at all three during the week when I'm studying. Uh, They've all cleaned up the language pretty good, except all of them still have this word hallowed in it. It seems like they would get rid of it. And as I thought about it this week, and I thought I'd ask you this question, if you were to get rid of the word hallowed, hallowed be be thy name. What word would you put in place of it? It's kind of hard, isn't it? It's hard to find a synonym. Praise comes close. Adoration might be a bit closer, might be a, a bit better, but there's, there's, a, there's not a direct word that is completely interchangeable with the word hallow, hallowed, hallowed. And just as an aside, what does that, what does that tell you about our culture, Right? The English language has been around for a long time. I looked up this week, Webster's, the Oxford Dictionary, they add like 1,000 to 2,000 words every single year. New words, new ways of of saying things, more definitions. 1,000 to 2,000 words, they add every single year. And in the history of the English language, all of our culture, we haven't come up with a new way to convey what the word hallowed means. Could it be because hallowed has to do with holy things? And sacred things. And our culture is actually moving away from holiness. Moving away from the sacred things of God and becoming more secular. That might be an interesting observation. It doesn't really help those of us living in 2020 understand what in the world does the word hallowed mean. What does it mean? What did Jesus mean when he said that word? Obviously he said it in Greek or Aramaic, but this is the translation that we have. Now I could give you a definition And I will in a little bit. But before we do that, I want you to come somewhere with me. Everybody close your eyes. Don't worry, it's not going to get weird, I promise. Everybody close your eyes. Close your eyes. And I want you to go to your secret place, your fortress of solitude, where you're alone. If you're a mom or dad with small children, imagine you're in your bathroom and the door is locked. Okay? Where you go to go alone, be alone, just get some, some you time. Okay, take a breath. Now that you're in your alone place, What are you thinking about? What are you dreaming of? What fantasies are 
running through your mind. Or, as you're in your secret place, your fortress of solitude, are you praying? And if so, what are you praying about? Is it the thing you find yourself praying about most often? What do you find yourself praying about most often? You can open your eyes. The answer to these questions, what you dream about, what you think about in secret, what you fantasize about, what consumes your alone time, what monopolizes your prayer time, the answer to that question and to those questions reveals what your heart hollows. To hollow something means that you esteem something. You have great respect or reverence for that thing to the extent that the entirety of your life revolves around that one thing. To hallow something means to set it apart as holy, as sacred. To have the entirety of your heart captivated with wonderment, with awe, with that thing. If something is, hallow is hallowed in your life, it's at the center of your life. Your whole life revolves around it. It's what your thoughts and priorities, your schedule, your finances, they all orbit around that thing. And they're controlled by that thing. To hallow something or someone is to worship it, to praise it with your life, to love it, cherish it, adore it. And if what you hallow in life is God, then your perspective on the world is going to be right. It's going to be right. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be able to enjoy both God and the good gifts that God generously gives to us. But if what we hollow in life is anything less than God, anything other than God, then our view of reality is going to be warped. And our ability to enjoy God and his good gifts will be at best perverted and at worst prevented. We won't be able to enjoy the good gifts or God like we should be. And we discover this truth in Jesus' words right before he gets to telling us how to pray. He tells us how not to pray. Open your Bibles. Look at it with me. Matthew 6. This is where we're going to be most Sundays. Matthew 6. I told my brother, he said, are you preaching this Sunday? I said, yeah. He said, what are you preaching on? I said, hallowed be thy name. He's like, that's it? He said, you can do a whole sermon on that? I'm like, dude, come on. Yeah, of course I can. I have, a, I have the gift of gab, right? Actually, it was hard. It was really hard. Let's read it together. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, the pagans and the hypocrites, they have a hallowing issue. They have a hallowing issue. The hypocrites adore man's praises and approval, what they want in life, what their life centers around, what they hollow is fame and the court of public opinion. Their lives are controlled by it. They only pray in public because what they truly want, what they truly hollow is the love of man, man's approval. And Jesus says they'll receive their reward. 
They'll receive their reward, but that's all they're going to get, nothing more. Because, this is kind of a startling thing, God gives us or gives us over to what our hearts truly desire. The hypocrites have a hallowing problem, and so do the pagans or the Gentiles that Jesus talks about. See, the pagans, they praise and adore stuff. They're consumed by the worries of this life. They keep babbling on, begging God, God, please, please, please give us this, give us that. They're anxious and nervous in their prayers. They probably can't sleep that well. They're persistent, restlessly, relentlessly begging God, trying to get what they truly want from God. Please, please, please give me this promotion. Please, God, please protect my family. Will you please increase my wealth? Give me a vacation home. Please, please, please give me time to have a vacation. Give me the grade. Give me this. Give me that. The pagans beg and plead with their God to try and get from this God what their hearts truly hallow. Jesus says, you, Christian, do not be like them. Do not be like them. You see, if we have a hallowing problem, we have a serious problem. And the symptoms of that issue appear in our prayer lives. It's where we can kind of sort out and diagnose if this is an issue in our life. And I think that's why Jesus instructs us the way that he does. And I think that's why he, he instructs us to start our prayers with howling, with praising God. Because if our praise is off, if our worship is off, then the confession part of praying and the asking or petition part of praying that we're going to get to in this series, that will be misdirected and misguided as well. The prayer hallowed be your name, is meant to get us off on the right footing. Hallowing God is the foundation of prayer. If we hallow something other than God, our prayers will be hindered. They'll be misdirected, misguided. Let me give you a few examples of how this kind of works itself out. If we don't hallow God when it comes time to confess, to receive the forgiveness that's been poured out to us on Christ, we're going to struggle. I know, I've known a few folks who live in constant condemnation, even Christian folks who just struggle for whatever reason they can't forgive themselves. I read about one gentleman this week. It's not a local guy. I, I read it. He, he uh, cheated on his wife and felt deep remorse about it and asked for forgiveness from his wife. He actually took it to his church and asked for forgiveness from the leaders of the church and his church family. He repented. He said, this was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I want to live differently. I want to heal my marriage. I want to keep going. And his wife forgave him and the church forgave him. And he knew that God had forgiven him. And yet 20 years later, he was still carrying guilt with him and punishing himself for the adultery. Well, come to find out, he grew up in a very sexually prudish home. The kind of home where sexual sin was treated like the worst sin of all sins. It was the biggest deal ever. You couldn't do anything worse than sin sexually. And this man was still trying to please his parents and to live for their approval. In this man's heart, he wasn't hallowing God. God didn't have the throne of his life. What really had the throne in his life 
was his parents' opinion of him, their rules. He was continually trying to live up to what they thought of him, trying to appease his parents. And this prevented him from resting in God's forgiveness. His ability to forget himself was negatively affected by having his parents' opinion on the throne of his life instead of Father God. See, Halloween's a big deal. It's a really big deal. I know of others who are consumed by requests before God. Their prayer lives, their, their prayers are essentially lists where they go before the Lord and, and they beg and they plead with God to give them more stuff, a promotion, a spouse, the role in a play, a better grade. And they lose sleep over this kind of stuff. They fall asleep begging God over and over and over again for stuff. And this too is a hallowing problem. It's a hallowing problem. They're treating good things. Those are all good things that I listed. Nothing wrong with any of those things. They're treating good things as bread. You say, bread? What are you talking about? If you know the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. They start to treat good things as necessities for life. Because they don't have God at the center of their lives, they're hallowing something other than God. So now they're consumed with the desire for something that the earth has for them. And they treat this thing as if it, it's a necessity. They need it. They have to have it. If I don't get this promotion, if I lose my job, if I never get married, if I don't get the grade, my life is over. Please, God, I have to. It's bread. This is what my life lives on. Halloween is huge. It's huge. And so many, if not all, of our struggles in life can be traced back to what we hallow. That is what we worship. It's the reason, and I think the reason that, that many of us struggle to hallow God, to keep Him at the center of our lives, to worship Him alone, to be captivated by Him. I think we struggle with this because sometimes the God that we're praying to is too small. See, I think sometimes we've limited God to somebody less than who he's revealed himself to be in our scriptures. And so Jesus instructs us when we pray, he says, you should think about who it is you're praying to. How often do you really think about that? Do you think about who it is you're praying to? You allow your mind to dwell on who it is you're allowed to be, or you're, you're being allowed to approach and not just approach. Most of us feel shame and condemnation. We're allowed to approach God with confidence, the Bible says. Do you think about who it is you're approaching? Jesus says, when you pray, pray our Father who is in heaven. Well, Jesus could have instructed us to pray my Father, and he wouldn't have been incorrect. If you love the Lord, if, you, if you're a Christian, God is your father, your personal father. You could say, my father. That's true. But Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say that. You see, each word of Jesus' prayer is pregnant with meaning. There are no casual words in the Lord's prayer. So Jesus says, when you pray, pray our father. Our. See, Jesus is reinforcing this truth. Christian, it's not about you. It's not about you. When you pray, Jesus wants you to be aware of this truth. You are a small part, small, valuable part, still small, 
of a much, much bigger story. See, when you were saved, you were not saved only as an individual. You were saved and adopted into a family. Your heavenly father is also the father of many, 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 many other people. So when you pray, don't allow yourself to be swept up into this rugged individualism that we love in America. It says you don't need the church, you don't need the family of faith. That's not true. Jesus says, pray our Father. Pray our Father. Force yourself to remember the community that you're a part of, the our, the we. Think about all of those that you belong to, the we's that you belong to. Your family, your extended family, your church family the local community, the nation, the entire global community, our Father. See, oftentimes when we pray, we can get me-focused really quickly. And Jesus is teaching us to pray, our Father. He is calling us to fight against that rugged individualism, to remember that we are valuable, but we are a small part of something much bigger than ourselves. Ultimately, it's not about us. It's about God and His glory. We play second fiddle to God. That's a good thing. We're supporting actors, and God is the lead. Pray our, pray our Father. Remember as you pray. Remember your communion with God and his people. Remember your community and try to have that perspective that goes beyond just yourself. And also remember as you pray that God is a good father. We talked about this a lot last week. God is not like a dad who takes his daughter to Toys R Us, says, look at these beautiful little dress-up toys or dress-up clothes. Look at these play necklaces. Look at these stuffed kittens, right? You can't have any of it. That is not the God that we love and worship. No, he's a good dad. He says, look at what I've created. It's for you. I want to give it to you. I want you to be able to enjoy it as it's meant to be enjoyed. He's a good father that we can trust. And he desires to give us only good things. And not stingily, but graciously and generously beyond anything that we could even begin to imagine or dream up to ask for. He says, come here, come look at what all I have. It's for you. I want to give it to you. Because you're mine. Because in every way that matters, I've adopted you. You are my son. You are my daughter through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Pray our Father pray our Father who is in heaven. I discovered this week here that the word for heaven is actually plural. If you go back to the Greek, it's plural. You say, why would it be plural? The heavens. Pray our Father who is in the heavens. Well, the ancient mind, the Greeks, they had kind of this threefold idea about heaven. There was the, um, the air and the atmosphere around us was considered the first heaven. The sky where only the birds could get to. They didn't have airplanes, not jetpacks like we've got today. That's a true thing. We have those. I want to fly one someday. Be sweet, right? The first heaven's the air that surrounds us. The second heaven is where the birds live and the space and the planets are, the stars. They couldn't get there either. No spaceships. And the third heaven was kind of everything beyond that. Everything beyond what we could see, the planet, some spiritual realm. So they had these three heavens in mind. When Jesus says, praise, he doesn't say, pray to our Father who is in heaven, far off, out there. He says, pray to our Father who is in the heavens. The heavens. Intentional. Jesus is intentional. Remember, there's no casual words here. Why does he say that? 
I think Jesus uses the plural form of heavens to instruct us that when we pray to Father God, we're not praying to a God who's just far off. We're not praying to a God who's just big and powerful and majestic beyond space and time. He is that. Father God is transcendent. That's what that word means. Big, away, powerful, far off. That's true. But that's not all he is. He's overall, above all. That's true. But he is also the God of the second and the first heaven. Meaning that even though he's massive and otherworldly, he is also as close to us as the air we breathe. He is near. He is imminent. Now, does this sound like a small God to you? Does this sound like a God that, you, that, that, that should be pushed to the fringes of our lives, pulled out only on Sundays, put in the closet until we, we get in trouble or we need him to give, some, give, him some, give us something that we truly want? No. No. This is our Father who lives in and controls the heavens. God, maker of the stars, controller of celestial beings. Not many people talk about this. We just celebrated Christmas, and I was thinking about this message. It occurred to me, in that story, God made a star appear in the sky directly over a rural flyover shack in Bethlehem. Think like Melinta, okay? No offense to Melinta, but, right? Bethlehem, Melinta, kind of the same thing, okay? Similar. Florida, Ohio. I'll be an equal opportunity offender, okay? And all the other small towns in Henry County. God spoke and a flaming ball of gas, nuclear fusion, which we haven't even figured out how to do that yet, enough, enough energy to power all of the world's electrical needs for millions of years. He spoke and a star was placed at the exact precise location. Millions of light years. Light is the fastest thing we know. A light year is as far as light can travel in a year. He spoke and a star, a flaming ball of nuclear energy was placed light years away so that three wise guys saw it and it looked like it was over a shack in the middle of Malinta, Ohio. That's crazy. When you pray, is this the Father God you think of? Or is the God you're praying to smaller than that? Loved ones, when you pray, do you know who it is you're speaking with? He's kind of a big deal. Our Father who is in the heavens. And Father God is not just far out there in the third heaven, ruling and reigning, speaking stars into existence. He's he's not out there just in the third heaven directing all of history and commanding kings and nations and chariots of fire. It gets better. This huge, powerful God, the Bible says this glorious God left the majesty of heaven and all his power and all his glory and he became a man. And he came near to us in Jesus And it gets even crazier. If you love Jesus, it says he comes inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. This same God, the maker of the stars, takes up residence in you. How is that even possible? God, the Bible says, holy, holy, holy. God is so holy. His name is hallowed. 
We're not praying this to make God glorious, to make him deserving of worship. He is that. He is holy. He is pure. The essence of purity. There's no stain or blemish on him, in him, around him. He's the antonym of sin. His light is the purest. There's no darkness in him. No, he's glorious, radiant. How is it that this transcendent, all-powerful star maker could come anywhere close to you and I without melting us into nothingness? How is it? How is this even possible? I don't know about you, but on my best day, I am no beacon of purity. (laughs) So far from it. I was thinking about a verse the other day, and it it struck me with terror. I'm not exaggerating. I don't know why it came to my mind, but I thought, oh, shoot. (laughs) What? Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words... You will be condemned. And now we know that Jesus is the one who justifies. So these verses aren't talking about saying the right thing and getting yourself into heaven. What they are speaking of is what our words reveal about evidence, the supporting evidence that corroborate the fact that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, I've been blessed with the gift of gab. Usually, so with our greatest weakness or strength, it's, it's also sometimes our greatest weakness, okay? Every careless word is afraid that, that stops me in my tracks. Fear and trembling. Think of all the words you speak. Think of all the words I speak. All the words that come out of my mouth, come out of my pen or my fingers as I type on the keyboard. Everyone is going to be judged. Now, I don't know about you. But a lot of times, not that careful with my words. The filter that most people have between their brains and their mouth is sort of non-existent for me. And if I am careful enough to consider my words, sometimes what I speak, even then, is far less than pure and sinless. Every careless word of mine will be judged before the star maker, before the holy, all-consuming fire that is our Father in heaven. If that doesn't stop you in your tracks and give you a little pause, your God is too small. Now, fear is a good emotion to have towards God. The Bible says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs. Fearing God will stop you in your tracks. It will make you careful. But fear will not make you hollow the Father. Fear will not make you praise the Father. Fear will not make you center your life, your entire life, around the Father. Fear will not make you want to run to your secret place, your fortress of solitude, and whenever you can, just so you can be with your Father and praise Him because He's glorious and wonderful and beautiful. No, fear all by itself will make you resent the Father. See, if your God is too small, you might rightfully fear Him because you know He's powerful and He's big and He can melt your face off. You might rightfully fear him and want to appease him because you know he sees all you're doing. 
He's going to judge all you're doing. But if the God you pray to is anything less than who he has revealed himself to be in the Bible, through the person of Jesus, you may fear him, but you're not going to love and hallow him. No, for that, you need to experience his grace. This is where I've heard people kind of get into some crazy new age stuff. There's this new fad in Christian counseling where some Christian counselor will walk one of their patients through this meditation process where they do certain types of breathing and they try and imagine Jesus with them in a traumatic experience or giving them a hug or, or even read catching them as they're being born. They dream this up, okay? And apparently, for some of these people, they've had a, an experience with Jesus that changed their life and helped them appreciate Jesus and his love for them in some new and tangible way. And for those people, I would say, good for you. I suppose there's nothing wrong with that, although, like I said, it's kind of new agey and, and proceed with caution. There's not anything inherently wrong with it, maybe, except for the fact that any vision or thing that you can conjure up in your imagination didn't really happen. See, if you want to experience the love of God and be moved in your soul, if you want to hallow his name, you don't need some special revelation or vision. You need only but turn to the passion of Christ. Where God left the majesty of heaven and stepped into human history. It happened. For real. Not in your imagination. He put on flesh and became like us. And then when you and I were speaking careless words, we're living selfish, selfishly, manipulating our spouses, losing our temper on our kids, chasing after wealth and material possessions. Well, you and I were hallowing everything else except God, living for created things, rebelling against our creator. God left heaven and lived a peasant's life. He lived a life of poverty, only eventually to take the punishment that your and my sin deserved. Dying a criminal's death on a cross. How unexpected is that? Do you have anyone else in your life that loves you that much? That would, even though you stabbed them in the back hundreds of times, treat them like garbage, would be willing to be tortured and put to death in your place. They're innocent. You're not. You're guilty and they would take your place, trade places with you. There is no greater love than this. People may lay down their lives for people they love, but who lays down their life for enemies and people that hate them? You see, we should fear God because we don't measure up. We do. We speak careless words. We are far less than we were created to be. We are sinful and broken. We should fear God. We should fear wrath and punishment. But our Father is good. He is gracious. He gave his own son to take our place and receive what you and I rightfully deserve. The Bible says this is love. This is what love is. This is what love does. The not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his own son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When we get this, like truly get this in our hearts, you will hallow the name of God. You will praise his name. You won't be able to help yourself. 
set a fire in my heart, consume me. So I can't say anything else. I can't talk about anything else. It controls me. There's no place I'd rather be. That's what happens when we get a glimpse of what Christ has done for us on the cross. You see, when you do wrong, we rightfully expect God to abandon us because there's something in us that knows what's right. So when we sin, when we fail, we think, that's it. He's gone. I'm done. He'll never forgive me. And yet, through Christ, you'll find he never abandons you. Not once. Not ever. Never. Never. Christ paid for it. What you did in the past. What you're going to do. It's paid for. He'll never leave you. When you experience this, when you taste and see that the Lord is good in this way, you will hallow God. You see, to hallow God's name means that you experience his grace personally, tangibly, and that his grace flows to you, through you, in ways that touches other people. Folks, praying hallowed be your name is far different than starting your prayers, thanks God for this day, and then moving on to your list. Praying hallowed be thy name is acknowledging that God is so good, that he is so great, that you don't need anything else other than him. Sure, you might be disappointed if you don't get the promotion. You lose your job, you you don't get the grade, you don't get the girl. But because you have God, your heart really has all that it needs. You see, the hypocrites, they hallowed man's approval. The pagans, they hallowed material stuff. And this revealed itself in how they prayed. The hypocrites only prayed when they could get what their hearts really wanted. The pagans begged and pleaded with some cosmic power to give them what their hearts truly desired. But Jesus says, we shouldn't be like them. When you pray, say, our Father who is in the heavens, hallowed be your name. See, if you only pray when when what you truly want is threatened or in trouble, you might have a hallowing issue. If your prayers consist mainly of lists about your wants, you might have a hollowing issue. If your prayer life is almost non-existent, you may have a hollowing problem. Your God might be too small. At many points in our lives, all of us will have a hollowing problem. Someone or something will be where God should be in the center of our lives. In those, name, in those moments, pray, hallowed be thy name. Think on who God is, what he's done for you in Christ, and ask him to help you receive and experience his grace as you ponder his death and resurrection. This will put God back in his proper place, and as you experience his grace, you will be able to dispense it to others in their lives as well. God will be hallowed in you. And hopefully, because of his work through you, he will be hallowed in their lives as well. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough thing to understand. Actually, it's not a tough thing to understand. It's a tough thing to get in our hearts. We know a lot about you. 
Many of us have spent our whole lives growing up in church. We've spent time reading the Bible. We've spent time in groups. We know all of this stuff. Sometimes it's, it's hard, Lord, living in this world. You and your greatness and your gloriousness and your, your, your grace to us, it just gets overshadowed by good things even. Taking care of kids and routines of life and making a living and, and doing all of that, Lord. It's, it's, it's easy to, to have you overshadowed by things in this life. Father, it's hard to change how we feel. And because of that, many of us live with guilt. Man, I know I ought to worship Jesus better than I do. I know I ought to love him the way Levi and Wes tell me I should love him. I just don't. I don't feel it. That's what's so hard about this, Lord. We're talking about our emotions, which we don't feel like we have a whole lot of control over. And honestly, sometimes we don't. Life is hard. Disappointments happen. It's a struggle. Father, I'm reminded of what you did for guys like Isaiah. You called him to a heavy task, to preach to a bunch of people who hated you, who were content to have their own prophets tell them what they wanted to hear. And you said, hey, I got a message for these people. Isaiah, it's not a fun one, but I want you to speak it. He was weighed down by the burdens of life. You were overshadowed by the worries of life. And so to give him hope, to change his emotions, to change his heart, what you did was you brought him into the throne room and you reminded him of who it is that he prays to. Father, I can't do that with preaching. Your Holy Spirit is the only one that can do this in our heart. Would you give us a glimpse of your glory? So much so that we would be overwhelmed by your greatness and not just your greatness, but the fact that you left all of that glory and you came and you loved us the way that Jesus did on the cross. May the cross and the resurrection never be routine for us. May we never grow tired of hearing it. May you consume us and captivate us with the love that is on display in the cross. Hallowed be your name, Lord. In my life, in the lives of these people, in the church of Crossroads, hallowed be your name, we pray. Amen.